Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. You take a time, and if you uh, feels you want to go out, you go out. Okay. Okay. Everything okay? Everything's good. Okay. Thank you. I think whenever you surrender to any kind of ritual, and you don't know the full detail of it, I think it's healthy to have a sense of nervousness. What comes to mind when you think about the settlements on the far eastern edges of Europe? I suppose the stereotype might be to imagine these kind of pragmatic communities without any spirituality after the Soviet Union spent decades trying to eradicate all religion from the region. But when I listen through Ash's recordings on his adventure along the edge of Europe, I hear a trend. In many of the countries that he visits, particularly around the Scandinavian and Baltic nations of Norway, Finland, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, there's a common thread of mysticism intertwined with an adoration of nature. So in this episode, we round up some of these myths and legends from the Russian border. First up, we hear Ash witnessing the Northern Lights in North Norway, a phenomenon surrounded by ancient superstitions. Then he undergoes a pagan sauna or sauna in Latvia, a practice with these peculiar links to Hinduism in India. And then in the final section of this episode, Ash witnesses a more modern legend, this revered oak tree in the middle of a football pitch in Estonia that allegedly survived the wrath of Stalin as he tried to pull it down. But before we get cracking with all of that, I ask Ash about his own spirituality. My father was Hindu-Indian, and he certainly was not a practicing Hindu. In fact, I can remember him saying, um, it's okay to eat beef because cows are holy, and therefore if I eat beef, I'm making myself more holy. Okay. So he wasn't a very good Hindu. Um, my mum is a Quaker, and I'd spent some time at a Quaker school when I was younger, so I'd had this very open and liberal approach to religion and religious beliefs. And I think probably influenced more by that Quaker liberalism where there's not really a sense of this is right and this is wrong and there's no doctrine. And when you look at Hinduism, I went to, well, I guess I went to explore it. I went to go travelling around India to backpack and look at my own roots when I was 18 or 19 and I went to see how Hindus lived in different parts of India, how that religion played a part in people's lives, how it 
was manifested in different regions. So I'd been interested in religion and identity. When it comes to a religious belief, I don't have one. I did philosophy at university and was always very interested in the philosophy of religion. Uh, but I don't have a particular spiritual belief. I meditate. Uh, I'm interested in the philosophy of consciousness. Mm. But I think these are great mysteries rather than following a religious doctrine. All my life, I have wanted to see the Northern Lights. And we heard that there was a really powerful solar storm whilst we were in Shurtkanez, and we were hoping we were going to see them. But it was cloudy the entire time we were there. And today, we've been driving through the Finnish wilderness, and it's minus 17 degrees, and it is completely clear. And we had a really long sunset the dusk is long in this part of the world but finally it's got dark and there is an enormous northern light show okay so can you describe exactly where you are at this point i was driving from the town of kirkenes which is in that bit of norway that goes over the top of finland and touches russia so right up in the top right (laughs) and i was driving to a town called karashok which is another part of Norway. It's still within the northern part, but it was a couple of hours' drive. And to get there, the fastest route was through Finland. So I was right up in the top of Finland, the northernmost point of Finland. So how did it work? So did you suddenly like think, look out the window, and you're like, what's that? So I'd been told repeatedly that the key component to your chance of seeing the northern lights is just the atmospheric weather. Not the electromagnetic weather, but whether or not there were clouds in the sky. And it was a very cold day, leading into a cold night, and therefore it was completely cloudless. I knew there had been some fairly decent solar activity, and therefore there was a high chance of having very visible northern lights. They rate it on the scale from K1 to K9, and K1 means that you can see the northern lights about 200 kilometres from the North Pole. Yeah, I've seen the map. It shows you, doesn't it? And sometimes it just dips into Scotland. Sometimes it dips into Scotland. A K9 is near the equator. So, you know, you can go all the way down to there. And if there's a K9 or a K6, 7, 8, what it means is that in those regions up in northern Norway, not only will you see them, but they'll be a lot more intense because there's a lot of electromagnetic activity. There are one, two, three, four bands of green across the sky and they are getting brighter and they're getting stronger and on the northern horizon there's a sort of red streamer coming up as well even as I'm looking now I'm seeing new streams appear I'm seeing it get stronger this is amazing I'm just seeing seeing the action of the sun on the atmosphere and neon light in the sky But it's cold. I'm going to get in the car and warm up for a bit and then come out and look some more. And is it something you... Had you always wanted to see the Northern Lights? I have loved space and I have loved science since I was a kid. And the Northern Lights had always been this thing that demonstrated the power of the sun. It was space and science coming down to Earth. And I loved the idea that you could see these theories and these ideas up in the sky above you. And also they seem very pretty. And I'd read Philip Pullman's book, Northern Lights. what a great book. And I think ever since I read that book, that was the moment that really made me uh, 
be intrigued by the sort of mystery and the notion of magic and legend that goes with it. And even as we're watching, the lights are getting stronger. They're twisting, they're turning. There's curtains across the entire sky. I really didn't imagine they were going to be this intense or this active. They, they fade and they come alive again and then there's new ones appear. You can see them making circuits. I'm looking right above me now and it looks like the diagram of a magnetic field from GCSE physics. I'm looking straight up at the plough and the plough is covered in these brushes of green which streak down to the horizon. And right now almost the entire sky is green with more intense pieces streaming across, twisting and turning around each other. It's magical. I've always wanted to see them. So there obviously is a very scientific explanation as to why the Northern Lights happen, but there is also a lot of folklore surrounding it and there is this kind of mysticism as well. Did you speak to anyone while you were in Norway or Scandinavia about what the Northern Lights meant to them? Yeah, so for most of the people, if you ask them about the Northern Lights, they will have a view of the Northern Lights the way we'd have a view of sunsets or weather. It's just something that happens because particularly in the northern part, for so much of the year it's dark, so you're going to see the Northern Lights fairly regularly. And therefore it's just something that happens in the sky. And the legends related to the Sami, who are the indigenous people of northern Finland, Sweden, Russia and Norway, they have a couple of different legends about it, but one of them is that it's a, a fire fox dancing through the sky and its tail is catching the embers of forest fires. But then there's other more superstitious legends. And I spoke to a guy in the Sami parliament in the town of Karasjok, which is where I was going to when I saw the Northern Lights, and he said you should never mock the Northern Lights. You should never wave at them in a patronising way because they are also viewed to be quite negative. They're angry spirits in the sky. So I did a bit of Googling after chatting with Ash, and it turns out there are loads of myths and legends to do with the Northern Lights. I love them. Some of them are really great. So in Chinese and Japanese cultures, it's believed that a child conceived under the Northern Lights will be blessed with good fortunes. In Iceland, it's believed that the Northern Lights ease the pain of childbirth. I'm not quite sure what mothers would have to say about that. But if you look at the Northern Lights before giving birth, your child might be cross-eyed, apparently. I think my favourite of all the legends is the one of Native Americans, who would whistle at the Northern Lights to encourage them to come closer. And then when they did, they would whisper messages to be taken on to the dead. Now, we move south along the Russian border to a community in Latvia where Ash discovers the unlikely link between paganism Hinduism and the sauna. Well, I've discovered that in Latvia, paganism is becoming more important. It's on the rise, and it's not just a fringe thing. It's very much a part of Latvia national identity. So I've, I'm meeting up with a couple of people who practice paganism in Latvia. And also, I've just discovered that the sauna, which is known as Pirts in Latvia, is an integral part of the rituals. So I'm meeting up with Juris, who's a sauna master, Ieva and Yelza, who are two students in paganism and particularly the sauna mastery of paganism. And I'm going to learn about it, about its history, about the heritage, and actually go and do a pirit sauna. 
So what's it mean to be a student of paganism? So let me take you back, Greg. First of all, I, when I was planning this trip, I spoke to a few people about my time in Latvia. And more than once, people said, oh, you need to learn a bit about the paganism in Latvia. And I thought that was quite an odd thing to hear. So I was intrigued to find out more about this. I encountered it in a couple of main ways when I was in Latvia. I went to this island in the middle of the Dauga River. And I met up with a guy who is almost the high priest of paganism in Latvia. And he's written loads of books about it, and he's dug up loads of archive sources. Um, when we come to our saunas, we, as we say, we, uh, for every sauna, make a goal. And, we, uh, and it seems that the way it's had an influence in Latvian culture is a lot of their songs, a lot of their myths, a lot of their legends, a lot of their folk music is tied up with paganism. So it's not just something that exists on the fringes or is always religious. It's an integral part of their culture. There's a real connection with the land, with fishing, with the forests. And through that, these legends have come out. These ideas got passed down through families. Under the communists, you were not allowed to be religious. And this could have got you into trouble. But because it was culture and it was singing, it was a way to kind of get around it. And I think for the Latvians, particularly under communism, it was a way to retain their sense of identity. And then in the post-communist era, there's been this desire to reaffirm and re-understand what it means to be Latvian. Tell me about the link between the sauna or the sauna and paganism. So from this guy on the island who'd collected all these ideas, he told me that the people of Latvia were the Balts, the Balts, and that they were an Indo-Aryan race. And he used a lot of words that I recognised for my journeys around India. He talked about mantras. And the other thing is that on this island where they basically built a new pagan temple, there were swastikas in there. And I asked the guy about this. I said, isn't this uh, controversial given the history of the region? He said, well, no, these have been here for a very long time. It's an old symbol that was used by the Bolts long before the Nazis took it up. And he said, of course, it, you know, it connects to the Indo-Aryan heritage, to the, to the Hindus. So it seems that at some point there was this common link between the people that ended up being the Balts, the group that inhabited Latvia, and the people that became the Hindus of India. And then they told me that they do the sauna ritual. So we go inside the sauna uh, around four times. First time is when you just uh, show to your body that it will go to heat and, and you heat up to sweaty, probably, I don't know. But you minutes. always have to feel yourself. Yes. When you feel inside that it's enough, you it's have enough. to go out. Because it's, there is no... It's no not finished per- sauna. It's not that it's a 100 <laughs> degree. And, it, and it, there is no like standards like 5 minutes or 10 minutes. It's well, how do you know? When, it's too when you hot, feel that you, it's too hot for you, you don't feel, feel comfortable. Yes, oh, it's okay. too much, and I, I go out. Then okay. you go out, and then you again... Uh, so as you would imagine, Greg, as you travel from northern Norway through Finland, through Russia and Estonia, you're going to encounter the sauna, or the sauna, yeah. as a, an integral part of culture. We all know about the Finns with their saunas and jumping in the ice. We all, all know about the Russians with their super hot saunas and eating in there and drinking loads of vodka. <laughs> But these guys, they looked down upon that way of behaving in a sauna. Okay. For them, the sauna was a very spiritual, very holy place. For these guys in the sauna, you don't drink. You're using it as a place of healing. And 
apparently this is not something that is just a new integration in society. The way the sauna has always been done in Latvia is this thing called the Pirts sauna. And it has this ritual element to it that you go in and you use a lot of herbs. I mean, we've seen videos of people you know, hitting themselves with sticks, but that's almost like a self-flagellation thing that you see the Russians do while they're drinking vodka. For these guys, they talk about how different herbs have different spiritual powers. So oak is the herb that gives you strength. It's the masculine strength. And then juniper cleanses you. And you use different herbs at different times of year in the sauna. So it was springtime, so we used a herb that helped with forgiveness because you're forgetting all the badness of the past or letting it go and moving into the new bright lights and sunlit up in the summer. So this is a book with all the different herbs in it. In, in, in English, I think. Yeah, yeah. I'll have a little look. It's just a small part. Yeah, it's only. a small part. Like the herbs, like everything, every, everything you see in a meadow, you can use it. I thought, okay, we're just going to have these herbs in there. No. There was an entire ritual piece that we went. And... The guy who is now the sauna master, he teaches people who want to learn about paganism and the sauna and bringing it together. He used to be a psychologist and he was a psychotherapist. So he comes from this very medical background from the Soviet Union times. And then he has investigated different ways of healing the mind. So cognitive behavioral therapy, NLP, going to India, trying ayahuasca with the shamans from Peru. You know, he's looked at everything and created these rituals in the right. sauna. So what do I need to do now? Yeah, let's go, go to the sauna. Wow. So talk me through, step by step, what they put you through during this ritual. So first of all, you get naked, as you do in a sauna. I was wearing a towel. Okay, you know, good. Cover my modesty, Frank. Yes. And uh, the first thing, of course, of course, was to put my feet in a bowl of warm water with calendula flowers in it. So I'm, I'm sniffing the, the leaves of the Aeva plant, which is the first leaves of spring. And it makes you think of forgiveness. I've got my feet in a bowl of warm water, which has got chamomile and various other herbs in it, to prepare my body for the heat of the sauna. Feel nice? Oh, lovely. And apparently the reason for this is to warm the feet. Um, so that the circulation goes well. I then put a woolen hat on my head because you don't want to get your head too hot. What are these hats made from? Wool. wool. So, sheep wool. So, organic. So I'm putting on a organic. sheep wool hat. <laughs> organic sheep wool hat. Actually everything here is organic. <laughs> so, and most of the herbs are... Wild. And then we went into the sauna and the sauna was going to be conducted by, the th by three people. So there was uh, the sauna master himself. And then Ieva and Yelsa, who are two students of the sauna master. And they'd finished the sauna mastery course and were now practitioners of Pirts. So first of all, the master did this. Um, he talked about the chakra and the alignments of the chakra. And he... Um, What's that, sorry? What's the alignment oh, of the chakra? Oh, so the alignments of the chakra. This is something you hear about in yoga and uh, from the Eastern religions. And he checked my chakras and used a a singing bowl, you know, where you hold a bowl made of copper and you take a stick and ring around and it makes this very resonant, deep sound. And uh, then he used some bells and downed with them over me. And he discovered an area where my chakra was, uh, was blocked. So that became a focus. He said, you need to work on some forgiveness today. Some problems in relationships with ladies. 
Yeah, the heart is a little bit broken. And then he talked about when you take the water before you chuck it on the stones. So it went up to about you know, 70, 80 degrees with the water from the stones. He whispered a mantra into the water and he said, this is programming the water with the intentions of what we want to achieve on this solar. So how are you feeling at this point? Are you feeling skeptical or are you thinking, you know what, maybe this is actually going to help me? My experience has been there are things within religion and spirituality and belief that have explanations that may not work, but the acts themselves can be very powerful, even if the cause of the explanation, you don't necessarily need to appeal to a higher power, there might be something else that is causing that to work. Mm -hmm. So meditation is a very good example. It's, it's become a tool within aspects of different religions, and it exists in Hinduism and Buddhism primarily. And it doesn't necessarily need for you to have an appeal to Shiva or Krishna for it to work. The process of meditation, when done well, works in other ways that are very good for your body. So you can do that as someone who is completely agnostic. And I definitely think that some elements of the physical components of a lot of rituals are very powerful. And I think there's a certain... A definite truth that as we become more disconnected from nature, we have failed to look after certain things that are essential for us as humans. And what really appealed to me about the paganism in Latvia was this acceptance of nature. The fact that as we become urbanized, we have denied the truth about the changing of the seasons. We've denied the truth that you should only eat certain foods at a certain time of year because they're available. You know, you can get strawberries all year round because they're grown in Peru. Uh, but they're not as good as the strawberries you can get from Kent in late summer. And I think if we become more aware of the changing of the seasons and different herbs and different things we should be doing, that's very good for us. And I think it's going to reduce our damage to our bodies as well as to our minds. Going into it, did you feel like nervous at all? Well, I think so. I think whenever you surrender to any kind of ritual and you don't know the full detail of it, I think it's healthy to have a sense of nervousness. And when you're going into new experiences, I think that nervousness is a good thing because it allows you to be aware of what's happening. You don't just go into a blase and you therefore, I think, take much more from the experience afterwards. Okay, you take a time. And if you uh, feel you want to go out, you go out, okay? okay. Everything okay? Everything's good. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. It's really interesting. When I first met Ash, I got the impression that he was your kind of stereotypical, no-nonsense, confident army bloke, which he is. But he's also incredibly open-minded, and I really love how he just throws himself into the sauna like this. He doesn't challenge the practice, but rather engages in how it might actually have real-life benefits. It's well worth checking out the video of Ash in the sauna. If you go on telegraph.co.uk forward slash edgelands, you'll find it there. Now, in the final chapter of this episode, we hear of a different kind of urban myth. An enormous oak tree in the middle of a football pitch in Estonia 
that survived an attempted takedown by Joseph Stalin. On the left now, you can see the stadium, and that's the oak tree in the middle. There's a tree in the middle of the football pitch. So can you just describe... So you're driving past, right? Is that where you are? What's going on here? So this is in the island of Sarama, and Sarama is this island off the coast of Estonia, to the northwest of Estonia. And it's much more isolated than any other part of Estonia. So it's an area that wasn't heavily developed by any of the colonising groups and uh, nations that came to Estonia. And it's therefore managed to retain a lot more of old Estonia. And we're driving along through this village and look to what they call the stadium. I mean, I didn't see any stands. So the stadium was a bit of an exaggeration for the the setup there. A pitch, maybe. It was a pitch. It was a pitch. And in the middle of the pitch, there was a massive oak tree. (laughs) How bizarre. So when you say stadium, it's... uh, You see they're playing football here. And they are even playing it like that direction. You see the uh, courts. And they don't mind the tree. They just... Oh, so there's a tree in the middle of the football pitch. There's a tree right in the middle. (laughs) A massive oak tree in the middle of the football pitch. That's quite cool. Yeah. And they just play the games around yeah. it. And does the ball hit the tree very often? Probably. <laughs> so, yeah, I went on to do a bit of research about this. And apparently, back in the day, Stalin had organised for this tree to be pulled down. And you can still see the rope marks around the trunk from where they tried to tug it down. Is that something that you... Uh, you is that fathomable? Do you reckon that might have happened? Something I've... I saw throughout the Baltics is in the years after the Soviet Union as they're trying to reassert their identity and explain what happened to them over the last 70 years of the Soviet occupation. The Soviets did a lot of terrible things in those places. And there's a tendency that whenever there's anything that possibly went wrong to just explain that that must have been the Soviets as a way to reassure themselves that it was because of this occupation by this evil empire. Okay, so it's kind of urban myths emerge. Yeah, so it helps reassure themselves that Stalin was this greatly terrible person. And maybe he did try and pull down the tree, but I think it's interesting how the explanation of things often reverts back to the awfulness of the Soviets. I find it interesting that they've still not got rid of this tree today. So they've actually, there's football matches still happen around this tree. Why do you think that is? It's quirky. Do you reckon that's a big part of it, yeah? It's quirky. It is part of what identifies them. It's something that makes this place unique. And I think also this veneration of nature. I think they genuinely would view it as sad to cut down this ancient tree just so 22 men or women can run run about kicking a ball. And that was the uh, tree of European tree of the year in what, 2015. The European tree of the year? Yeah. Did you know that there was a tree, European tree of the year? I, d- I, I didn't before it was nominated. I did not know the European yeah. Union had a tree of the year. Yes. And that was it in 2015. Well done. Yep. Good tree. Good tree. So... Did your encounters with the pagans in Latvia, Witch's Hill in Lithuania, seeing the Northern Lights, did it change the way that you see the world at all? Well, the great thing about the Northern Lights is it reassured me about the wonder of the world. And I knew that Northern Lights existed. I'd seen them on video, seen them on TV. And I didn't go there hunting the Northern Lights. I just happened to discover them as I was driving. And they overwhelmed me and filled me with wonder to such an extent 
that it's made me want to go out and seek other amazing spectacles of nature and hopefully be so awed by those too. So it's affected the way I might do things just by being reminded of the wonder of nature. When it comes to the paganism and the bits that I saw down in the Baltics, the bits that I saw down in the Baltic countries, the learning that they had this connection to Indo-Aryanism fascinated me, just from an intellectual perspective, that you have these connections across societies and great distances. But I really liked their holistic approach to medicine, that they had this focus on understanding the person and this sense of compassion in the sauna ritual. But definitely their veneration of nature and their appeal to the power of nature, I think is very powerful. And I think we can learn a huge amount from that. So without having to go too much down religious beliefs, I think reminding ourselves to be connected to the changing seasons and understanding the passage of time because I think if you understand the passage of time and the changing of seasons and that nothing is permanent that can help us deal with some quite fundamental problems that we have around the denial of death and the anxiety that we find in ourselves about not accepting that our lives will end at some point. Now whether or not you believe you're going to be either reincarnated or go to heaven or hell afterwards the fact that you get an awareness around that and the, the impermanence of the lives, I think that's quite a powerful thing to take away. Thank you to Ash Bardwaj, reporting from his 5,000-mile adventure through 10 countries from Arctic Norway all the way down to Romania. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Edgelands, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your shows. And if you're really enjoying Edgelands, please do give us a rating and write us a review. We would love to hear from you. We will be releasing a new episode every week. But if you want to hear episode three ahead of schedule, you can go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash Edgelands and listen to it right now. Just click on the episode and you'll also find additional content including videos and photos and written features from Ash Bardwaj. And for anyone with a thirst and a hunger to go out and explore this part of Europe for themselves, we've got some brilliant tours, including a Northern Lights adventure. All of the links you need are up there on telegraph.co.uk forward slash edgelands. I've been Greg Dickinson. Thank you for listening. We hope to see you very soon indeed.